Hey everyone, you're listening to Primary Care Anywhere, a resident-led podcast through the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. My name is Austin Poth, I'm one of the third-year residents, and today we're going to have a topic discussion about insomnia, uh, its effect on people, and what we can do to help them. To help frame our discussion, we're going to start with a case. Danielle is a 34-year-old female with a history of well-controlled major depressive disorder who is presenting for a follow-up for her chronic insomnia. She reports that she continues to have difficulty with sleep maintenance, but no issues with sleep latency. She is adherent to her CBTI program and is unsure if she has gained any benefit from the intervention. She continues to adhere strictly to a sleep hygiene regimen and is not currently taking any medications. She is wondering what other options are available to her. So in order to discuss this case, uh, we'll talk about uh, multiple aspects of insomnia. Uh, First, we'll talk about the basic definitions and how to take a history for someone with insomnia. Then we'll discuss screening and diagnosis, and finally we'll discuss treatment and wrap up the case at the end of that. At this point, I'll turn us over to Grant to start us off. Hi, my name is Grant Gosson, and I'm a first-year internal medicine resident. I will be taking us through the definitions and important aspects in history-taking to look out for in insomnia. Firstly, insomnia is a term that we use to describe the experience that many patients have of difficulty sleeping. These patients have the opportunity to sleep, but experience trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or returning to sleep after an awakening in the night. It is the most common sleep problem listed in population surveys. To understand insomnia, it is useful to understand the basics of sleep. Both sleep and wakefulness are normal physiologic states of the brain. Two processes, sleep-wake homeostasis, and circadian rhythm govern our sleep-wake cycle. And when aligned, they consolidate sleep to occur at night and wakefulness to occur during the day. The drive to sleep increases while awake and decreases during time spent to sleep. The circadian rhythm, which lasts 24 hours, acts by promoting sleepiness during the night and alertness during the day. The circadian drive has its greatest effect on sleep during the early morning hours, when the homeostatic drive for sleep has decreased, and conversely, has its greatest effect on wakefulness during the late evening hours when the homeostatic drive for sleep has increased. Factors affecting the sleep-wake cycle include light exposure, habits surrounding sleep, and both endogenous and exogenous triggers of physiologic arousal. The diagnosis of insomnia disorder requires that sleep difficulty experienced as insomnia cause daytime symptoms, which can include fatigue, moodiness, and or impaired function in social or work situations. And additionally, it also requires that it not be better explained by another sleep disorder. So some of these other sleep conditions include restless leg syndrome, circadian rhythm disorders, and narcolepsy. When considering insomnia or insomnia disorder, it is important to take a thorough history. Numerous medical conditions can have symptoms that often get reported as insomnia. For example, symptoms of CHF, such as orthopnea, can often cause a great impact in a patient's sleep. Additionally, shortness of breath in patients who have asthma or COPD can also negatively impact both the quality and quantity of a patient's sleep. It's very important to make sure that these other comorbidities in a patient are well controlled and not playing a contributing role in the patient's sleep disturbances. Important questions to ask when it comes to history taking and insomnia are defining the chronicity of the problem. Is this new? Is this intermittent? Is this chronic? 
Additionally, you want to identify where the specific problem is in the patient's sleep cycle. Are they having trouble falling asleep? Is it waking up too early in the morning? Or are they getting disruptive sleep or not having refreshing sleep? So all important things to consider for these patients. If the problem is more acute or occurring intermittently, it's very important to focus on possible precipitating factors, such as life stressors, like starting a new job. Additionally, has the patient had recent travel across time zones, resulting in jet lag? Does the patient have changing work shifts? Have they been previously working a day shift and now they're switching to nights? Or are they working a lot of 24-hour shifts? A lot of common problems that we see, especially in the medical field. It's also important to ask about new medication changes or changes in the dose or timing of any activating medications, such as antidepressant medicines, steroids, some antibiotics, and various stimulants the patients may be taking. You want to also evaluate if there's been any change in substance use, especially caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, or any illicit substance that may affect the sleep-wake cycle. You also want to assess if there's been a change in either when the patient is going to sleep or if there's been a change in the patient's sleep environment, such as bedroom noise, light, or sleep position. For more of the chronic problems affecting sleep, you want to get a better assessment of what the patient's activities before sleep entail, including caffeine consumption, alcohol intake, as we discussed previously, exercise, and then a big problem is screen use and how that can affect our sleep cycles. Always be sure to assess what over-the-counter or prescription medications the patient might already be taking for sleep. We want to assess when is the patient's bedtime, when is their wake-up time, and how long do they estimate that they are actually spending asleep. Another big component to consider is how does the patient's time spent in bed compared with their estimated total sleep time achieved. And finally, we want to assess what habits does the patient have after an unwanted awakening? Are they lying awake, checking the clock, or watching television? How drowsy or fatigued are they, and how much irritability do they have as a result of their insomnia? Daytime napping is another big one. We want to know when and for how long and how often our patients are napping during the day. All these aspects together help to compose a complete and thorough history when it comes to dealing with insomnia. My name is Jeremy Smith, and I'm a PGY3 internal medicine resident here at the University of Utah and planning on pursuing a career in primary care. I'm here to go over both screening and diagnosis of insomnia. Unfortunately, when it comes to screening, there really are no mutually agreed upon routine screening recommendations for insomnia. However, there are a certain number of risk factors and potential associated health conditions that we should be on the lookout for to identify those who are at an increased risk. First and foremost, insomnia is very common. Some surveys show that up to 50% of adults report some type of insomnia experience. Some of these risk factors include advancing age, overall poor health, and a lack of social connection. It is much more prevalent in women than in men and can occur or worsen with hormonal changes experienced with menstruation, pregnancy, and or menopause. Patients that are experiencing acute stressors, those who take activating or stimulating medications, experience depression, anxiety, chronic pain, all understandably seem to be at an increased risk for insomnia and probably should prompt us as clinicians to delve a little bit more into these patients' sleep habits. When it comes to actually making the diagnosis, history is key in the evaluation of insomnia and it really is, for the most part, a clinical diagnosis. We should focus our history taking on both the acuity of the insomnia 
and patterns and experiences around sleep, and this can both narrow our differential and help point to an underlying sleep disorder if there is one. Trying to identify any other mental or physical health condition that may explain someone's insomnia can be helpful and may guide your treatment appropriately. There are so many other medical and psychiatric conditions that may disrupt sleep, including congestive heart failure, COPD, musculoskeletal pain, bipolar disorder, depressive disorder, PTSD, overactive bladder, just to name a few. And we should be addressing the treatment of these underlying conditions to hopefully improve their insomnia as a secondhand result. Having your patient complete a sleep diary for one to two weeks can be helpful, as well as obtaining any collateral information from any bed partners as long as the patient is agreeable. We should focus our physical exam to parse out risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea, which includes something like greater BMI, neck circumference, waist circumference, macroglossia. Lab testing really isn't super helpful, but it can aid in the diagnosis of some other underlying medical conditions, such as if they're reporting symptoms of restless leg syndrome, then checking something like iron studies or ferritin uh, is a good idea. When it comes to sleep studies, these are really only indicated when underlying sleep disorder is suspected, for example, OSA, or when the insomnia is so severe or refractory to therapy. For instance, polysomnography is indicated when your history suggests something such as OSA could be present or when sleep disruption is associated with unusual nocturnal activity. Multiple sleep latency testing is another tool, and it quantifies daytime sleepiness and evaluates for REM sleep during naps and it's usually obtained when your history suggests narcolepsy as the diagnosis. Most of the time, we should be able to hold off on sleep medicine consultation for sleep testing. However, if symptoms are severe or resistant to behavioral measures, or it's so bad it's resistant to safe doses of pharmacologic therapy, then consultation may be appropriate. And that's it. Now on to Dr. Bell for how to treat these patients. Hi everyone, this is Carolyn Bell. I'm an internal medicine intern here at the University of Utah, and I'll be talking about the treatment of insomnia. I've been interested in the topic of sleep ever since reading Dr. Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, during my neurology and psych units in med school. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. While insomnia can be a primary disorder, it is more commonly a symptom of another problem. So keep in mind that treating any underlying causes of insomnia is the most effective way to help most people sleep better. If someone is determined to have a primary insomnia, they don't necessarily need a sleep specialist unless their symptoms are resistant to treatment or very severe. If there is a comorbid psychiatric problem, referral to a psychiatrist first might be more useful. Because all treatments for primary chronic insomnia are only modestly effective and there is a limited evidence base, insomnia treatment selection should be based on shared decision-making, minimizing risk and cost, and using resources accessible to the patient. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the first-line therapy for insomnia based on safety and efficacy in randomized clinical trials of people with and without psychiatric disorders not using sleep medications. It is better as a long-term treatment with less noticeable benefit in the short term. One meta-analysis from 2018 showed a number needed to treat of 1.95 for better insomnia severity index scores and a number needed to treat of 11 for improvement in the total sleep time in people treated with CBTI. Another study found that six weeks of CBTI produced a lasting benefit for up to two years. CBTI has five components, sleep education, CBT, sleep restriction, stimulus control, and relaxation techniques. 
The first component is sleep education, which teaches people about sleep drive and the circadian rhythm and expectations for sleep. Component number two is CBT, which gives people insight into dysfunctional beliefs about sleep and helps them reframe these beliefs. In sleep restriction, the third component of CBTI, the patient keeps a sleep diary for two weeks, then sets a wake-up time and total sleep time of at least six hours based on their sleep diary, then adds 30 minutes. Bedtime is whatever time coordinates with total sleep time and wake-up time. Time allowed in bed is calibrated in 15-minute increments based on the time awake in bed or by sleep efficiency, the percent of time someone is asleep in bed. The more someone sleeps, the more efficient their sleep and the more time they can spend in bed and vice versa. Sleep restriction is obviously not safe for some groups, including those with bipolar disorder, seizures, or other untreated sleep disorders. The fourth component of CBTI is stimulus control, which is similar to sleep hygiene and encourages only using the bedroom for sleep and sex, no screens in bed, reducing light sources, and leaving the bedroom to do a quiet activity if awake in bed for 15 minutes or more. Lastly, relaxation techniques include progressive muscle relaxation, abdominal breathing, and meditation. CBTI ideally occurs over a six to eight week period, but it is still effective when delivered over the phone, via books, or even on the internet in as little as two to four sessions. People don't even have to do all five components to see benefit, so don't be afraid to encourage your patients to pursue these options. Next, let's discuss pharmacologic treatments of insomnia. These are considered just as effective as CBTI in the short term, and their use does not impair the benefit of CBTI either. One randomized clinical trial from 2017 found that CBTI with a tapered six-week course of Zolpidem had a better long-term outcome than CBTI alone or long-term PRN Zolpidem. Sleep aid medications, also known as hypnotics, have side effects and put people at risk for falls, confusion, sedation, respiratory depression, medication dependence, and complex sleep behaviors like sleepwalking. An older meta-analysis from 2005 showed the number needed to treat with Z-drugs, benzos, or diphenhydramine was 13, while the number needed to harm was just 6. Also, no FDA-approved sleep aid is recommended over others. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine's guidelines do not list a recommended duration of treatment. The ACP's guidelines suggest a max duration of 4 to 5 weeks with CBTI for longer-term management. Doxepin, Isopiclone, Remelton, Lemborexant, and Suvorexant are all approved for long-term use. If someone can't fall asleep, meds with a rapid onset in less than 30 minutes and a short duration with a half-life of less than 5 hours are the best options. These include the non-benzo-gaba agonist, so-called Z-drugs, Zaloplon, Zolpidem, and Isopiclone, the melatonin agonist, Remelton, and the benzo triazolam. For problems staying asleep, long-acting meds with half-lives less than 10 hours and slow onset between 30 to 60 minutes can be used, including the orexin receptor antagonists lemborexant and suvorexant and the tricyclic antidepressant doxepin. So what if your patient has tried all of these options and wants to try something off-label, over-the-counter, or a so-called alternative remedy? Sadly, there is not evidence behind any of that. Antipsychotics are thought to cause more harm than good for sleep, 
Mirtazapine and amitriptyline can cause or exacerbate restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement disorder, and diphenhydramine has no evidence to back it up, short of anecdotes from anyone with allergies. Alternative herbal remedies, acupuncture, and yoga also have no evidence of benefit for primary insomnia. That being said, according to the 2017 European Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Insomnia, Evidence suggests that prescription drugs for insomnia improve sleep only modestly, and 60% of that improvement is due to the placebo effect. So if a patient thinks something will help them or has helped them with sleep in the past, help them by supporting their belief. If we're saying that the placebo effect is what's really behind sleep aid efficacy, then it may not surprise you to learn that even melatonin use is fraught with conflicting recommendations. Some say there's insufficient evidence that it helps with sleep, Others say it should be used first line for sleep onset problems in the hospital and in long-term care facilities. For insomnia, it needs to be given one to two hours before bedtime. And for circadian rhythm disorder adjustments, it should be dosed six hours before bedtime. To wrap things up, I'll point out that according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine's clinical practice guidelines for chronic insomnia, if someone needs a sleep medication, the benefits of improved sleep far outweigh the risks of treatment. Be mindful when using these medications, but know that you can use them. With that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Poth to wrap up our case. Hey, it's Austin again. To go back to our case, we had a young patient who was struggling with sleep maintenance uh, with her chronic insomnia and was already enrolled in CBTI, but did not feel that she was having any benefit from it. You'll see patients who will come through clinic with this complaint And there are a lot of pharmacologic options, as Carolyn had discussed. One of them that is very beneficial for people with sleep maintenance issues is doxepin. Doxepin is one of the few approved medications used for long-term maintenance, and according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, is one of the first-line treatments recommended for sleep maintenance. Now, another class of medication was mentioned called the orexin receptor antagonist, and these are new medications that can also be used for sleep maintenance. But one word of caution for them is that they can cause somnolence the next day. Both of these classes of medications would be good options for this patient. But of note, there's not a consensus about how long people should use some of these medications, although the typical recommendations are for between four to five weeks with tapering doses. Regardless of what pharmacologic therapy is chosen for your patient, the most key thing is that you engage in a risk-to-benefit discussion with each patient as these medications can have definite benefit, but they also come with multiple side effects. So to wrap up this episode, insomnia is a disorder that affects many people, upwards of 50% in some studies, and workup for it is mostly through a good history. There are multiple treatment options for people with insomnia, depending on if they have issues with sleep maintenance or sleep latency, but the first-line therapy for everyone will be CBTI. If they don't have the ability to do CBTI, BBTI, or brief behavioral treatment for insomnia is also an option. And if those fail, there are medications that can be provided for short courses that can benefit patients as well, as long as a risk-to-benefit discussion is had with each patient. And with that, we'll finish our podcast. You've been listening to Primary Care Anywhere, and thanks for tuning in.